yeah. I love my HBCU. And boy, I love it, love it. I love it, love it. I love my HBCU. And man, I hope my team they won one. Yeah. I hope my team they won one. Yeah. Man. I hope my team they won one. Yeah. I hope my team they won one. Yeah. I tune into the HBCU Sports Lab to see if my team won a loss. If they lost, I'm quiet as a mouth. But if they won, keep tab. Uh, I'ma do the dab, yeah. Dr. Cavill, yeah. he know what he be talking about. Talkin Mike about. and Charles, Talk. they know what they be talking about. Talkin they about. compress the analytic data with your hip hop. If you know them like I know them, they gon' tell you if your team, if they wanna love yeah. and who the ball, who the ball. So listen to Professor Yes Sir and pay attention, cause he gon' teach a lesson. Yes. This is Dr. DeVille with Inside HBC Sports Lab with Mike Washington, Charles Bishop. Mike Washington is out on assignment, but we have none other than Charles Bishop. Welcome to episode 387 Inside HBC Sports Lab, radio show and podcast, a show that's covering the sporting HBC dash for all things HBC sports, from institutions large and small, from the NAIA to the NCAA. We share insights and information on the HBC sports culture. HBCU Athletic Aesthetics to facilitate the story of HBCU Athletic Programs in the business of HBCU Sports. I'm your host, Dr. Kenyatta Cavill, along with my co-host, Mike Washington, Charles Bishop, filming from our home studios, and sending a signal live to KCOH to 30 a.m. studios with the Texas Radio Hall of Famer, Ralph Cooper, that's multi-Hall of Famer, the beautiful home of Texas Southern University from Houston, Texas. Today's episode of Inside the HBC Sports Lab is sponsored by THG Agency, LLC. THG Agency is a company that provides sporting and educational consulting and data analytics. With that said, Charles, how are you doing today? Doing well, Doc. We've got a few topics to uh, get into today. I'm sure we will uh, get into the uh, environment in which we will take a look at, especially this past week with regards to uh, NFL uh, draft or, or, or those who were not draft, but uh, we had some great baseball uh, this past weekend and the swag. I, I know we'll get into that. So looking forward to getting into all topics that are HBCU athletics. No doubt, no doubt about it. And you're absolutely correct. And that one is a hot one off the um, start about the NFL, but I think we'll get a chance to get into that a little more. Came across something with Jim Trotter that I thought made some good points. I have some data points that I've been discussing on a couple of shows and sharing as I listen to shows. But um, as we get into a little further to it, we can get a little more in dialogue, if you would, about that. But let's start as we normally do with some of the news of the day, some big time news as you're starting to get into the championship, huh? a couple of championships uh, have been crowned out of there. Where do you want to start, though, with the news of the day? Well, let me start with the news today. Let's start with the football. Uh, if you have not uh, seen it, uh, there was only one NFL draft pick. It was former Jackson State cornerback Isaiah Bolton, who was selected by the uh, New England Patriots. He was a 245th pick uh, in the seventh round. But I want to acknowledge uh, those players who were uh, uh, signed by NFL teams as uh, undrafted free agents. So there are about approximately uh 16 of them, but we'll start Hampton wide receiver Jada Kiss Bonds. He goes to the San Francisco 49ers. All-Corps State linebacker Claudia Charles goes to the New York Jets. Jackson State had a receiver Dallas Daniels to the Denver Broncos. South Carolina State Shaq Davis goes to the New Orleans Saints. UAPB's offensive tackle Mark Evans to the New Orleans Saints. Lane 
Farmer uh, from, the, I'm sorry, Andrew Farmer from Lane College goes to Los, to the Los Angeles Chargers. Blue State quarterback Deion Gallat, he goes to uh, the Baltimore Ravens. Uh, Virginia State running back Darius Higgins goes to the Indianapolis Colts. Alabama State DB Keenan Isaac to Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Florida A&M rushing Isaiah Land, the linebacker, goes to the Dallas Cowboys. Jackson State's Aubrey Miller, linebacker, to the Miami Dolphins. Southern defensive lineman Cam Peterson, he goes to the Baltimore Ravens. Bowie State defensive lineman Joshua Pryor going to the Washington Commanders. Uh, the X-Men, Florida A&M wide receiver Xavier Smith goes to the Los Angeles Rams. Nugget, Jackson State defensive back Dijon Nugget Warren goes to the Chicago Bears for Valley State running back Emmanuel Wilson to the Denver Broncos. So those were the listing of your uh, NFL undrafted free agents that will be looking to hook on with teams in the NFL. I think that was, what, 12, 13 uh, free agents that signed. Yes. One of them was invited uh, for the summer camp Yes, in terms yes, of those numbers. Mm -hmm. uh, fascinating when you break that down. And we'll get into it, like I said, a little more of that. One that I got to speak about a little bit that I'll get off there is Dillard wins Gulf Coast Athletic Conference Baseball Championship. It's first year of the program existence from – this is from DillardBlueDevils.com out of New Orleans over there. Obviously, they played the uh, championship tournament in Jackson. Uh, Mississippi, were you familiar out there in the old ballpark out that way? Dillard's baseball shocked GCAC, <laughs> lost the first game, got in the loser bracket and just wouldn't stop winning after that. Won five games to get it done, including uh, two on championship Sunday, as you would, uh, knocking off Russ College that uh, had played really good baseball. And even those games were close. They had essentially one bad inning uh, in that second matchup where it became uh, a winner take all. Uh, but great contest in terms of seeing the players going back and forth. And really in a lot of ways is what it's about in terms of having a conference and you having everything online. Uh, the smiles on the faces, and they even panned in the crowd, so you got to see the fans. Uh, obviously, oftentimes moms and dads, brothers and sisters, and just alumni uh, that were out there celebrating and supporting their team. Uh, so it was joyous to see uh, what they were able to get done. Uh, again, after losing that first game to Russ College in the quarterfinals, 10-1, they look back battled back and won two games in a row to claim the championship on Saturday after winning three during the elimination phase uh, to get to that championship Sunday. In the championship round, Tyler Fitch was the hero on offense as he drove in three of the Blue Devils' five runs and a 5-2 win over Rush to set up that final contest uh, in a lot of ways. In the winner-take-all second game, Dillard gave five runs in the eighth inning to break a 3-3 tie capped off by Jalen Ayers' three-run inside-the-park home run. It uh, just got under the glove of an outfielder there. Dylan Scott would also get it done on the mound as he pitched a complete game, only allowing two runs and striking out seven over nine innings to clinch the title. And you always see that as the case. If you get into that loser bracket and you find a way to the championship game and find a way, obviously, to push through, in a lot of cases, that's because you get a couple of games where you get a pitcher uh, that is able to give you those additional innings. A complete game, obviously, but even if they give you seven to eight innings, that's how you're able to push through and get a little more of that momentum. So that was kudos to see 
uh, Dillard get it done there in terms of uh, giving you some news from the GCAC. First year of the program, not first time winning a championship in terms of, you know, and essentially this is the first year the GCAC had enough teams, in this case six, where they were actually able to do a uh, full-fledged tournament. Um, and so that was pretty cool. It was neat. Kudos to Dr. Kiki Baker-Barnes and those presidents uh, out there, GCAC schools that were able to push forward and bring back baseball. Significant. So I'm excited for the GCAC. Yeah, that's pretty significant, especially when you take a look at Dillard. First year uh, in terms of their baseball program and then to fight back from the loser's bracket. Uh, that uh, strong, that strong uh, fight back from the GCAC uh, regular season conference champion, Russ College, and, and the fight their way into the championship game and to win it all. Uh, you take your hat off to that program. Uh, you talk about a program ascending places. Uh, year one, they bring home a trophy, Doc. Yeah, that's pretty big. That's pretty big. Nothing stiffy knows that. That excited. Um, you want to talk about uh, South Carolina State as they win uh, women's tennis championship? I actually, I was going to talk about the baseball. Uh, uh, I'll do the, the players I'll do the South Carolina okay, State, and no. I'll come back with the baseball. South Carolina State wins twenty twenty three. Miak women's. I was putting these championships in a row. That's why I wanted to gotcha. get them out of the way. Uh, Miak women's tennis championship dominated over the years, dominated throughout the season. And they get it done when it counts in terms of the tournament. South Carolina State defeats Delaware State 4-0 on a Saturday morning at the Cary Tennis Park to win the 2023 MEAC Eastern Athletic Conference MEAC Women's Tennis Championship. The Bulldogs won their third straight, as I was saying. They've done it for a while. And 17th overall to earn the MEAC automatic bid to the NCAA Women's Tennis Championship. South Carolina State got started with a strong doubles performance winning at both number one and number three. Um, as they won that. And then at number three, they also got it done uh, in terms of uh, winning those big games. Uh, number one and number three were Nalanda Silva and Theodora Bouchet. won 6-0 at number three before Sophia Tresina and Hen Samala uh, took a 7-5 win at number one to give the Bulldogs the double point. They continue to dominate and get it done as they win there. Outstanding performance goes to South Carolina State along with the coach. Hardeep Judge gets it done in terms of the tournament, and they just littered the all-tournament team in terms of that. Well, doing it for the women were not just enough. They turned around and did it for the men as well. So South Carolina State represents both on the men's and women's side, tennis championship. Uh, South Carolina State on the men's side defeat North Carolina Central 4-0 on Saturday afternoon uh, at the park there. Uh, Carriage Tennis Park, to be specific, um, as they continue to get it done. Um, with that being said, let me turn it back to you and give you some updates on where you wanted to go with some news of the day. Yeah, let's look at the SWAC Baseball Weekly Honors for this past week, May 2nd. Uh, SWAC has tabbed Alabama State's Ali LaPreet and, and Omar Melendez in SWAC Baseball Weekly Honors for their outstanding performance this past week. Hitter Week LaPreet, he returned to the lineup and helped the Hornets to a series sweep of FAMU. He hit 625 uh, this past weekend uh, along with a, a .769 on base percentage during the three-game sweep of FAMU. He drove in seven runs with three home runs. He reached base nine times 
Dr. Deville in 12 played appearances over the weekend, went two for four with two home runs and three RBIs in a 10-1 game to win. He also went two for four with a home run and four RBIs in a 13-10 win in the series for the Allers. And the pitcher of weed, Omar Melendez, he tossed seven scoreless innings with eight strikeouts to help Alabama State earn a 1-0 victory over FAMU in the series opener. He scattered five hits with three walks and only allowed one extra base hit. Melendez won his sixth straight start. So those are your players of the week in the SWAT. Heck of a series with Alabama State and FAMU. Big time, big time. Baseball, man. We'll turn in our second uh, segment and really get into some baseball talk, man. It was some big time games played this weekend, some uh, sweeps that I weren't quite expecting uh, to go that way. Um, so it'll be interesting as we dig into that. But before we take this break, I want to talk about this one. I'd be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to Coach Antoine Sewell. It was over here at Prairie View one time. I followed him, had him on there. Bowie State defensive coordinator. Morgan State coach selected for the Bill Walsh Diversity Fellowship with Ravens. Uh, this is from HBC Sports. That's Morgan State's defensive coordinator, Anton School, uh, has been selected for the Bill Walsh Diversity Coaching Fellowship Program in the Baltimore Ravens. So is the second coach uh, with Bowie State ties to be selected for this fellowship in as many years, along with former Bulldogs quarterback, Arrive receiver coach Nemo Washington, who worked with Cleveland Browns in 2022 before taking a job at Morgan State. So it was the defense coordinator of his alma mater, Bowie State Bulldogs leading a unit that won three straight CIAA championships from 2018 to 21, would not let it go going deep into the playoffs several of those years, I must say. Sewell, who drew interest from Alabama State, joined Damon Wilson as Morgan State's um, after Wilson was named Bears coach last season, other previous coaching stops for the Bear defensive coach include Prairie View and where he won a championship there, and Fort Valley State previous to that. Kudos to Coach Antoine Sewell. Uh, big news, big stuff going on there. I was excited about that. You know, last week we had the money. As we talked about the money uh, sports, add another one to it. <laughs> Uh, before we get into this last break, Town Bank pledges $1 million gift to Hampton University for the naming rights, along with some other things they'll do, and that's naming rights to the stadium. Hampton University announced today that Town Bank has pledged $1 million to the university for naming rights to Armstrong Stadium and premier engagements with the Department of Athletics. The grant also outlines career services and professional development opportunities between the university and town park family of companies. Hampton University President Daryl K. Williams said, quote, we're extremely excited about this news and we look very much forward to our enhancement partnership. We truly appreciate Town Bank and its continued support and advocacy of Hampton and our vision to amplify and sustain the athletic program and the culture of excellence that promote national university pride and build high achieving leaders and champions. Thank you again, Town Bank, end quote. Quote, the gift marks the largest partnership between Town Bank and HBCU, end quote, said Alexis Swan, president of Town Bank Consonola in Williamsburg. Quote, we are excited about the opportunity to collaborate and find new strategic ways to enhance our relationship with Hampton University, end quote. Big time in terms of that opportunity, 
interesting that for the number of years, they really don't get into that. So that'd be fascinating to see uh, if that's a million dollars over some period of time or one year, or is it a million dollars per year? It didn't really get into that level of detail, but that'll do it for this segment. Stig will be right back after this break. We'll come back on the other side and really get into some of the baseball talk as we get excited of what took place. Give you some updates on some of the independent programs. Uh, tough weekend for them. We do have one of the programs that's in the hunt, so we'll make sure we talk about that out of the Northeast Conference. And then we'll get in really where it's getting hot and heavy in the swag baseball. Stick with us. We'll be right back after this first break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Nope. Nope. Come on, him? Ooh, I like him. Quick, the quicker picker upper. Bounty picks up messes quicker, and each sheet is two times more absorbent, so you can use less. He's an eight. He's a nine. Bounty, the quicker picker upper. Supermarket sushi, really? No. Wait, Troy, you work here? I'm never not working. Like head and shoulder scalp shield technology, up to 100% dandruff protection, even between washes. Never not working, huh? Oh, Troy, you're such a good teacher. Yeah, I know. <laughs> never not working. Never not working. Never ever not working. Are you serious? Never not working. Dandruff protection that's never not working. Head and shoulder scalp shield technology. It's never too early to plant the seed, to share the tradition, and instill a sense of pride in your HBCU with your little ones. HBCU Pride and Joy Children's Boutique helps you share your school spirit with a wide selection of adorable kids' apparel and accessories officially licensed from your favorite HBCU. Visit HBCUPrideJoy.com and follow us on all social media at HBCU Pride Joy on Facebook and Twitter. Press the analytic data with your hip hop. If you know them like I know them, they gon' tell you if your team, if they want a lot, yeah, and who the ball, ball, So listen to Professor, yes sir, yes sir, and pay attention, cause he gon' teach a lesson. This is Dr. Camille's with Inside the HBC Sports Lab. Let me get you some updates on some of these scores here as we look at The Colonial with North Carolina A&T, they had a tough weekend. And they really struggled over the last couple of weekends. Told you as we came back two weeks ago, they swept, which was a great weekend. And they turned around and got swept basically this weekend. So they're sitting in the ninth position in the Colonial. But they're just a game and a half back from that vaunted sixth spot. So it'll be interesting to see what they can do over the last couple of weekends. Uh, as they, in a lot of ways, just continue to struggle in terms of uh, what's going on there with them in the colonial position. Let me see if I can get you some of these scores just to keep you updated, uh, to be informed there. Uh, first thing started off on that Friday, as you know, uh, play a three-game series 
Sometimes they play a double header, but they started on Friday where they played Stony Brook. They lost that game five to one uh, to start things off um, where they actually played a double header on that Friday. So they get back for the second game and see if they can get some things going. It was not to be close to contest, but still could not get over the hurdle. They lose that one five to three in terms of what took place there. Uh, we're not able to get a game in on Saturday. Um, and so they play the final game on Sunday and uh, not to any avail as they lose that one six to one. So you come off and you get some excited with people talking about down the stretch. You're a little closer in terms of right there in this seventh spot, just a game back. I think it was a week ago. You come back this weekend, you lose three um, uh, to Stony Brook, but it gets you in a position to really uh, have a chance to make um, the Colonial playoffs. Uh, which is the top six teams that they do. Um, and so you have no room for error uh, if you're North Carolina A&T trying to figure that out. So tough haul going there. Uh, any thoughts, Charles, and just how tough that may be in terms of trying uh, to make a late season run in terms of what that looks like there uh, for North Carolina A&T and the Colonial, their first year uh, in terms of making a run in the baseball after um, not doing too well in the Big South as well. Yeah, tough, tough road uh, for North Carolina NT in terms of uh, their first year in the CAA. But, uh, you know, I, I'm curious to see, uh, especially with regards to uh, Black College Nines, where they might fall after having a tough weekend like it did. Uh, you thought that things were going to be swing, you know, uh, in an upward trend for NT after the previous weekend uh, where they were able to get the sweep. But uh, a disappointing weekend. Uh, but, a uh, tough conference, um, and ANT will see how they can get to, like you said, that bond at six, sixth position. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see what that looks like as they try to get it done. Um, it looks like they have a long road to go, but if you can string a couple of wins together, get some confidence going, get the bats going, you might get might be able to get into it. Pitching-wise, they, they've been in those games. You know, you, you've seen those games. It wasn't like they were just um, – beat in terms of the bats taking it to them. They were all competitive in those games in terms of losing relatively close. Uh, but you got to get a little more uh, runs across the plate to be able to put some pressure on the other team's batting I mean, and pitching. Couldn't do that. Northeast Conference, you have the uh, previous MEAC matchup, if you would, uh, between Maryland Eastern Shore and Norfolk State. So I was interested to see what this looks like. And it went a ways in terms of putting Maryland Shore uh, up in that top six seed in terms of see what they took like uh, in that matchup. So on Friday, as they get it started, Maryland Eastern Shore uh, defeats Norfolk State 10-8 in terms of what you had there on Friday. Getting into the Saturday matchups, you got a little more going. Uh, Maryland Eastern Shore continues to get it done, so they know they win the series. They defeat Norfolk State 6-4, so they take the second game. Coppin State Beats up on Sacred Heart, 13 to 1 in that matchup. Uh, but Delaware State, uh, in their matchup against Long Island, loses 5 to 1 in terms of what took place there. On Sunday, we'll see what took place with Maryland Eastern Shore. Do they get uh, the brooms uh, out in terms of what that looks like? Uh, they weren't able to get those third games in in terms of the matchup there because uh, they do a double header on Saturday. Uh, and Norfolk State gets a little bounce back and so they weren't swept in terms of that matchup so they do get a win there 
Norfolk State uh, defeats Maryland Eastern Shore seven and five in terms of what took place there. So when you look at the seedings, uh, where it gets a little interesting, Maryland Eastern Shore, because of uh, taking two out of three from Norfolk State, they sit at this sixth spot. They are two games ahead of Merrimack that's behind them, and they are just a half a game behind Sacred Heart in terms of securing that spot as they try to get prepared for the East Northeast Tournament to see if they can get in that tournament uh, as things go there. So Maryland Eastern Shore has been pretty solid. They're 11 and 10 overall in the conference in terms of uh, being able to be solid in, in the middle of the hunt. Uh, so they've been playing pretty good baseball in terms of conference play. Overall, they're just 15 and 27. They've been kind of up and down in the season. Not so much for Cobb State coming in at 7 and 14. Delaware State behind them at 6 and 15. Uh, tied with Norfolk State at 6 and 15. But not at the bottom as you had Stonehill that is 5 and 16. Looking at Maryland Eastern Shore, what are your thoughts in terms of just overall how they've kind of played this first year, if you would, in terms of Northeast Conference at least being – uh, pretty competitive, middle of the road, if you would, and trying to put themselves in a position to see if they can make a tournament uh, about being able to get a couple of series here and there in the Northeast Conference this first year. Well, you mentioned they're, they're 11 10 in the conference in the first year, uh, very competitive, one game above 500. Uh, and you're talking about a strong program coming over uh, from the MEAC into this conference, and they've continued to stay strong uh, during this first year. Uh, uh, in that Northeast Conference. So, uh, you know, they, they carried over that pitching, and that's what you got to have here on this level uh, with regards to uh, throwing some decent arms out there. Uh, we remember Coppin State and now Maryland Eastern Shore with some pretty good arms. So they've had a, a very successful first year uh, in the Northeast Conference. Now, I'm going I'm to take this over, just get your general thoughts. But, you know, I was in it. Uh, and so I know you didn't quite uh, follow it like I did. But I won't, I would be – Missed if I didn't get some interest in terms of this MEAC softball tournament. I told you going in the last week, this is the final week. And so you had that matchup between Morgan State and North Carolina Central. Essentially, it was going to be for first place in the division uh, with Norfolk State right in the mix as they hosted Maryland Eastern Shore. Well, I'm going to start with this. Maryland Eastern Shore got beat up by Norfolk State, pretty much got swept there as they got out of there. So they fall out of that top four spot um, as they do – uh, stay in that sixth spot, but you're talking about uh, being securely in to just hanging in. Uh, but Norfolk State takes two from Central uh, in terms of being able to get it done. So Morgan State, the Bears, Lady Bears, there win the softball regular season championship 24-19 as they get it done against Norfolk State on the road. So pretty uh, significant there. Norfolk State uh, behind them at 24-21. and 21. Uh, they'll have the second seed while North Carolina Central will hold on to the third seed. And then Howard finds a way to sneak up to the fourth seed after winning uh, there. Have won six of the last games, so they're playing pretty good softball right now. Coppin State gets into the tournament as well. And their fifth spot in Maryland East Shore just holds on for the sixth spot. But fascinating when you talk about what's going on a little bit in softball over there. Obviously, this week for the SWAC, you get into softball. So it's going to be interesting to see when you talk about the East versus West. Um, the record, only one loss for Prairie View in terms of what they're able to do in the total uh, swack, if you would. 
can they utilize that and can they hold on to that momentum that they will take advantage of the West as they sweep Southern and make sure that Southern does not get into the tournament. Southern does not make the top four spots in terms of the Alcorn is able to get in there above Southern. Uh, But it's going to be interesting when you start looking at these SWAC East. You know, obviously we talk a little bit about that in terms of the term for baseball. But we see it's playing uh, its head again. So I'm fascinated to see what that will mean in terms of the SWAC. Uh, Bethune-Cookman holds on to first place, even though they lost their last game. Uh, in the East, 18-7. and seven. They finished above Jackson State. Uh, that is at 12-12. and 12, Tied with Alabama State at, guess what, 12-12. and 12, And we're not mm. finished with the ties, Charles. Yeah, fam, you at 12 and 12 in terms of one, two, three, and four. So we'll have to see the tiebreakers. But this is what's ironic about how these teams finish. All these teams finish out the season with with a loss. But Bethune-Cookman, it was just one. Jackson State and Alabama State, it was one. But FAMU gets into the tournament, as it looks now, losing their four straight games. Mm. The first matchup they play against Prairie View, you know, when you do the East-West, it's number one in the West, but number four in the East in regards to as the standings hold out now. Uh, so it'll be fascinating to kind of see what that looks like in terms of uh, what goes on there. Let me take that back. That was last year's record. But in terms of what took place this year, Alabama State is actually the number one seed. That's what I recall coming into. So I was a little confused what was going on there. They've won five straight. So that I'm interested if they'll play each other. Obviously, that was the championship game uh, that Alabama State thought they were going to go in there as they were looking at as the strongest team coming into 2022. But Prairie View got hot and got it done. So if they face off sometime in the tournament, it's fascinating to see what that looks like. But let me break down the top four teams in terms of 2023. Alabama State, number one, 17 and seven. Bethune Cookman at 15 and nine. Alabama AM at 13 and 10. Jackson State at 13 and 11, just edging out FAMU that will not make the tournament at 12 and 11 in terms of what took place there. Big win by Jackson State. Needed uh, that last win they got to make sure they got in the tournament. Kudos to Jackson State. In the West, uh, Prairie View, 22 and 2 in terms of what they're able to do. Grambling State, second seed at 14 and 9. Texas Southern at 12 and 12. And Alcorn State, as I said, at the fourth spot, 11 13, while Southern. Uh, is outside looking in eight and 16. They had a chance, depending on what they could do against Prairie View, and needed some luck by Alcorn State. Could not get that done. So those are your seeding going into the tournament this week. Uh, they start off on Thursday with fascinating, as we'll give you some updates on Thursday when we come back into the show about what took place there. Let's get into our second break. We'll come back on the other side and talk a little bit about the SWAC baseball, what took place this weekend, and see what Charles thinks. Charles, I can give you this. And we talked a little bit about this. There was some pitching. Mm. Are you concerned? There was a pitching matchup that went down uh, one whole game. We'll talk about who got it done uh, on the other side. Stick with me right back after this second break. Hillman College is an HBCU in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where we prepare students for a different world. Stillman is a college of distinction for last year and this year. Our largest majors are business and biology, followed closely by psychology, criminal justice, and history for pre-law, communications, English, and religion. 
Our newest degree programs are in the Department of Computational Sciences, which covers cybersecurity, data analytics, and math. The Biomedical Academy prepares students for competitive entry into health professions and graduate programs. We have established summer biomedical research internships with major research institutions, such as the University of Alabama, Drexel and Temple Universities in Philadelphia, the Salk Institute in San Diego, California, and the Universities of Florida, Indiana, and Iowa. We became creative with social distancing and masks for the pandemic. Our students enjoy movie nights at the stadium and the new Melissa N. Davis Legacy Courtyard where you can eat and enjoy friends. We have the Divine Nine Greek Letter Organizations, student government leadership and ambassadors. Our small class sizes, nurturing faculty, and friendly environment let you know that Black Lives Matter at Stillman College each and every day. Applications are free. Sign up at discover.stillman.edu. Complete the contact card and apply today. Stillman College, where we prepare students. For a different world. Press the analytic data with your hip hop. If you know them like I know them, they gon' tell you if your team, if they want a lot, yeah, and who the ball, ball, So listen to Professor, yes sir, yes sir, and pay attention, cause he gon' teach a lesson. This is Dr. Lills inside HBC Sports Lab with Charles Bishop, uh, bringing you a segment in terms of the swag baseball. Things jumped off on Friday. I kind of teased this out, and it really got going. And everybody was looking at that FAMU-Alabama uh, State uh, matchup. Remember, they'll play twice in a matter of four weeks. So this was the first crucible to see two teams that were at the top of the conference tied at the time going into this matchup, going in both at 15-3 and three before what took place this weekend. Uh, but the first matchup was a pitching game. Alabama State got it done, winning 1-0 to zero over FAMU. Remember, these games are played in Montgomery, setting up uh, the rest of the weekend. What also took place uh, is the fact that uh, Jackson State got it done as they end up defeating Bethune-Cookman that is uh, challenged a little bit in terms of what's taking place of lately <laughs> in terms of that matchup. And then you have Texas Southern getting it done against Alcorn State, 9-2. to two. Uh, Prairie View pulls out a late Game winner against Gramlin, eight to five, and Southern defeats Arkansas Pine Bluff, ten to one. Didn't think much of that, but a couple of scores as you get into it were very interesting in terms of what took place uh, a couple of days later. Um, in terms of Valley gets it done against Alabama A and M, six to one in terms of that matchup. Uh, in terms of those Friday matchups, so let's see what takes place. As it gets a little more interesting on Saturday, Valley wins against, against Alabama AM. Alabama State blows out Fan. So that's two, uh, 10 to one in terms of that matchup. 
Grambling has a thrilling win over Prairie View uh, in late innings as they hit a walk-off to win 11 to 10. Uh, and then you have games that are played on Sunday. And we find out that uh, Jackson State takes another one from Boone Cookman, five to three. And then they even win the third game. So they bring out the brooms. Jackson State wins seven to three, which shook a lot of folks. Up. I wouldn't necessarily uh, be that surprised if Jackson State can find a way to get it done against Bethune Cookman at home. But to bring out the brooms and sweep, I'm not sure if I was following that. That means Jack. Uh, Bethune-Cookman has gotten swept two weeks in a row. Last week, Alabama State, and this week, uh, Jackson State, they really pushed them out of first place in a lot of ways. Two or three. Um, they took two, two or three? Two out of three. Um, three. Bethune got the Friday um, got the Friday game Match in up. extra inning. Yeah, Friday, okay. one extra inning, 13. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that correction there. I do got this one, though. Alabama State wins those FAMU 13 to 10. Uh, to get the sweep in terms of that matchup. Uh, Valley gets the sweep against Alabama A&M, 10-7. Uh, Texas Southern takes it to all corn State, 17-7, uh, putting them in the woodshed uh, in terms of that matchup. But you get Arkansas Pine Bluff taking two from Southern, which shocked me. So you got Jackson State taking two out of three, and then Southern losing two out of three. Our friend Carlos over there was having concerns about baseball. He's like, not so fast. Get off the field. Legit. Right. <laughs> it's legit. We talk about that. I'll get into the, where people's standings are after I give you a chance to kind of talk about what did you think about this Topsy and Turley weekends with a couple of sweeps out there, some teams getting two out of three uh, that was shocking, uh, and then a team like Southern losing two out of three to Columbus. Let me start with the most with the with the least obvious, uh, and that's Mississippi Valley with the sweep of Alabama a and I gotta call Hakeem McClellan and check and see when's the last time Valley baseball swept a team? Because I, I have I just I have not seen that in quite some time. It's so, been a while. Yeah, so that that, that just Valley hadn't been Valley hadn't been competitive since they had Shanko, I think it was. Yeah, and exactly. that's been what at least. Yeah, since what Doug Shanks or somebody. Yeah, so that's that's been a long time. So uh, that jumped out at me. Uh, you mentioned UAPB taking two or three from Southern. That was a shocker. Uh, this is about that time of the year. We start waiting for that Southern kick to come in, uh, and that was a momentum killer uh, to see UAPB. Uh, team that, quite honestly, has been at the bottom of Swag West, take two or three from Southern. You just don't see it. Uh, and then take a look at what Grambling did uh, over the weekend with PB. Uh, they, they did a, a great job, uh, I think, of taking two of three uh, from or yeah, they took two That's of three right. from Prairie View. So uh, they held on, held serve, if you will, in the Swag West. So it further legitimized uh, Grambling baseball, especially as we uh, take on these last few weeks here of the regular season, getting to the tournament. Flip over, take a look at the Swaggies. Uh, total shocker with Jackson State and Bethune Cook. Uh, I thought but Bethune Cookman would probably go in at, the, at at a minimum take two or three against Jack State. Jack State has been down uh, this past season, but uh, complete shocker for Jack State to take two or three from a, a Bethune Cookman team uh, that was playing some pretty good baseball. Uh, so I did not expect to see that. Uh, the one, of course, uh, complete shocker, but they are the class of the league. It's Alabama State. Uh, I mentioned they're number one in hitting. They're number one in pitching. They're number two in fielder percentage. 
and to go out and to sweep uh, probably, uh, you know, you talk about uh, two and two A uh, FAMU and Bethune Cookman with regards to the SWAC East uh, to take to sweep FAMU. I, can, I can't say enough about that. So I'm going to really be looking at that last weekend when Alabama State goes to Tallahassee. That's going to be phenomenal, especially the pitching matchup. Omar Melendez, he's one of the top pitchers in the league. Uh, he is undefeated thus far in the league. Going against Hunter Beats. Hunter Beats went into, in, went into that game Friday night. He was undefeated as well. Uh, but both of them played tremendous uh, uh, pitching uh, performance. You take a look at the stat line in regards to uh, Hunter Beats. He really had some change up or sinker working because he got, I believe, 12 round outs in that game. So uh, he really was had the ball moving around. Uh, Alabama State was able to get on top of him at some point and scratch across the run. But uh, Alabama State sweeping FAMU, that was huge, huge momentum booster as we go into these last few weeks of the season. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating when um, you talk about what took place there. Uh, as you said, that that was significant uh, when you sweep a team like FAMU that was playing really good baseball. Obviously, you had yeah. the first game. Um, second, the third game ended up being close in terms of the, the scores there, even though and Alabama State is able to win the games in various fashion. They win the shutout, and then when they need to, they can out-hit you as well. There it is. That's a tough uh, way to match up and a great way to go into the tournament. Let me give you the updated standings, at least who would be in the tournament thus far, and it looks like it's going to stand this way. Uh, even though Southern um, lost two out of three, they are three games ahead of Pine Bluff, so I guess Pine Bluff still has a puncher's chance. Uh, but Southern is sitting at 9-9. Nine and nine. They've lost two straight, obviously, as we talked about there. Prairie View lost the last two games of their series, uh, but they are at 13-7, and seven, so they drop uh, below Texas Southern that sweeps uh, their matchup with Alcorn. So they move up to 13-6 quietly. We told you to watch out for Texas Southern in terms of every to hit. But now it seems like getting a little pitching. The schedule is uh, rounding out in their favor. They're right there. So there's going to be a matchup, which creates a big matchup this weekend that I'll give you a chance to talk a little bit in your mind, which is Grambling coming here to Houston to face Texas Southern. Huge. So Grambling have had uh, three straight weekends. Southern down in Baton Rouge, they come up, they got a first-place matchup against Prairie View. They say, oh, well, this is your bonus for doing that. Yeah, you're in first. But now Texas Southern – is in your backyard uh, at number two, and you got to travel on the war to Houston to play them. So Texas Southern, as I said, sitting at 13 and six, Grambling at 16 and five. In terms of those top four teams in the West Division, you go over to the East, just when we're kind of burying Jackson State um, and saying they really need to push to, if they want to solidify themselves, at least find a way to get in the tournament, they do just that against a team that you were not necessarily thinking about that in terms of Bethune Cookman. Uh, you have Mississippi Valley State uh, just on outside, three games in terms of the win column, but they're five back in the loss column. So Jackson State should be pretty solid in that fourth spot at nine and 12. Uh, you have Bethune Cookman sitting at 12 and seven. Fam, you at coming to Texas Southern in Houston. You got Prairie View going to Baton Rouge in terms of Southern. You got Alabama State taking on a hot Mississippi. Mississippi Valley State team. So that may be interesting. It's worth uh, taking State has to go on the road. 
Yeah. Uh, at least the one to kind of keep your eye on. Uh, is there any letdown from Alabama State after two big weekends? I don't see it, but it's something to be interesting there. Then you have that Alabama A&M Bethune-Cookman. Can Bethune-Cookman find their winning ways again in terms of uh, two tough weekends uh, as they lost two straight series? And then you had that Jackson State to FAMU. Uh, can FAMU bounce back? Or is Jackson State just that hot? Do they get a chance to, to make things a little more interesting, see if they can push forward and maybe try to find a way to sneak into that third spot in terms of the tournament, see what the season looks like, and just want to be playing some good baseball? And then you got Alcorn State and Arkansas Pine Bluff. Uh, Pine Bluff would like to stretch things and maybe put a little pressure on Southern. They can find a way at home. Uh, as they've won two out of three, if they can find a way to sweep this, things could get a little more intriguing in that Western Division for that fourth and final spot uh, over the last couple of weekends. But those are some of the key matchups. What are your thoughts in terms of baseball this weekend in the SWAT? Uh, let's see if FAMU has any sort of hangover from getting swept by Alabama State uh, with Jackson State coming in. Uh, that was big in terms of uh, psyche of beating uh, a Bethune-Cookman baseball team with Jackson State going to FAMU. Uh, huge weekend. I think Grandma coming here to Texas Southern, you have two of the top pitchers uh, in the conference uh, who should be squaring off, I believe, this Friday. Uh, that'll be uh, Ab uh, should be uh, Abraham DeLeon for Texas Southern. He has a 2.59 ERA, has six wins going into the game. And then Connor Rudy uh, for Grandma. Uh, he eats up a lot of innings. He's one of the top five pitchers in the swag in terms of innings pitched, and he has six wins on the season. So that's a Friday matchup that I'm very interested in watching. Uh, Grambling has a couple of pitchers who just eat up innings. Lorenzo Peterson is another one that I'll be looking for this weekend with the Grambling Texas Southern matchup. So that'll be a huge matchup over in the SWAC West. No doubt about it. We'll come back on the other side before we do that. Shout out to Lonnie Shaw, Deron Waters, Chuck Hunt. Uh, as some of those jumping in here, uh, checking us out on the show today. Come back on the other side. I want to get into some of the data. I want to talk about this NFL draft that a lot of people are talking about, but I want to focus on the numbers. Um, and I know there have been a lot of concerns. Obviously, you would like to see better. But when you take a maybe a bigger macro look in terms of the numbers, uh, maybe it tells a different story not just in terms of HBCUs, but in terms of who controls this and what institution and how this looks overall at the FCS level. So stick with us after we take a last break. We'll come back on the other side and I'll give you some updated data from that perspective as well. It's been difficult because I hadn't been able to see my grandchildren. An expression on someone's face when you do something nice for them. I miss all my friends in school. Visit GetVaccineAnswers.org so you can make an informed decision about COVID-19 vaccine. Charmin Ultra Soft has so much cushiony softness, it's hard for your family to remember. They can use less. Sweet pillows of softness. This is soft. Holy Charmin. Oh, excuse me. Roll it back, everybody. Sorry. Charmin Ultra Soft is so cushiony soft, you'll want more. But it's so absorbent, you can use less. So it's always worth it. Now, what did we learn about using less? You gotta roll it back, everybody. <laughs> we all go. Why not enjoy the go with Charmin? Let's get back to getting ticks instead of watching flicks. Before we can safely get out there, we need the facts on COVID-19 vaccines. Visit GetVaccineAnswers.org so you can make an informed decision for yourself and for your crew. 
five-star backyards, Yellowwood brand pressure-treated pine. If it doesn't have this yellow tag, you don't want it. Maureen is saving big holiday shopping at Amazon. So now she's free to become Maureen the Marrier. Food is her love language. And she really loves her grandson. Like really loves. Press the analytic data with your hip hop. If you know them like I know them, they gon' tell you if your team, if they wanna love that and who the ball. So listen to Professor Yes Sir and pay attention as he gon' teach a lesson. This is Dr. Bill with Inside the HBC Sports Lab with Mike Washington and Charles Bishop. Mike Washington is out on assignment. But I wanted to give you some updates in terms of the NFL. And Charles, you've heard the number. And uh, obviously, I know you're out there playing golf a little bit and stuff like that. But you've heard the panic button, I'm sure. Sure. Uh, because uh, if I know your constituency, you had a lot of folks <laughs> call you personally, text you, <laughs> talking about the skies falling. Uh, sure. worry in terms of what that looks like. Obviously, um, for Jackson State folks, at least they had the fact they had one drafted in that perspective. But I know the big thing was everybody saying one HBCU player drafted. And not that this is the measuring block, but I like to open it up in terms of FCS and give a perspective of what that looked like overall and just to show um, the direction the NFL is going then we have an NFL um, reporter that provides even some more insight that kind of collaborates what I uh, noticed when I started doing some numbers myself. FCS, in terms of draft, the first person that went was in the second round, which was one individual. Had two individuals at the FCS go in the third round. No one at the FCS level goes in the fourth round. Obviously, you saw no one in the first round. In the fifth, you had two. In the sixth, you had two. And you had seven going the fourth round. So according to my numbers, that was 11. When you look at that from a percentage perspective, because 11, you may say, oh, that's some numbers. May not sound different, obviously, than one. But from a percentage perspective, there were 259 players drafted. So that's 4.2%, Charles, when you look at that in terms of HBCUs, which is less than a percent when you talk about one of 259. But that got me to thinking. And then I heard some data uh, out there that talked about in that first round uh, that this was the first time really in the modern era <laughs> since there was 60, since there was like 16-some teams when all the players in the first round came from uh, what the NCAA calls the autonomy five, what we hear called in the newspapers, the power five. Every draft picture was from yeah. a yeah. P5 yeah. conference. Yeah. It wasn't in turn until the uh, second round uh, in terms of the 40-plus pick where you finally get a player from the FCS. And then you got a 44th pick where you get somebody outside of the power five. So it even bleeds into the second round in terms of those numbers. So if you talk about 33 of that from what you call a G5, right, or the non-autonomous programs, that is 13% at the 33% mark. So even those FBS programs, 
uh, the Nanata Park Final Five only had 13% pick. But check this number out. Of the 33, 10 of those came from BYU, Cincinnati, or Houston, which, mm -hmm. as you know, if you're following the conference journey, as we like to talk about, Charles, are teams that are going into a Power Five conference, as we know the Big 12. Sure. So that would move it down to 23. You move it down to 23, that's 8.9%. Less than 9% come from the other G5 FBS programs, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, was just crazy to me. But if we just get nice and we say, let's look at this in terms of FBS programs, uh, in terms of that. If you look at FBS programs, 238 of the 259 picks were from the FBS level, 91.9%. A little under 92% came from FBS programs. So it just gives me a huge framework when you think about this. But I said, let me go see what this looks like over the years in terms of this data. 2018, 19 players from the FCS. And if we use in 259, as the market changes a little bit every year because they have some other draft picks in there. But let's say about 259, that's 7.3%. In 2019, there were 13. Uh, that would be 5%. In 2020, obviously, there's a lot of the council season for the fall. Some played in the spring. Uh, it was 6. It was one of the low markers. was 2.3, uh, right? Um, and in those years, respectively, you had two HBCUs and 18, four HBCU players and 19, one HBCU in 2020. 2021 is when everybody really was a cut off guard because you had zero HBCU players drafted, but you only had five FBS players, which was 1.9%. Not that it makes you feel better, but at least you get an understanding of what is taking place here in a lot of ways. Um, 2022. Three HBCU players, but 20 FCS players, high water mark for both in some time. Still, that's just 7.7% 7 .7 of 259, 300 some players taking, right? And then obviously, I told you about 2023. I'll stop it there and kind of get your thoughts on that thus far. I'll come back and I want to give um, some additional numbers. Um, what are you starting to see when you hear that kind of framework, those numbers there, Charles? Uh, what I see is uh, NFL GMs and scouting departments uh, wanting to take less and less of a reach uh, of players at the FCS level. Uh, to me, it becomes uh, a question of economics. Uh, if, if I don't <laughs> have to uh, get an FCS player in the first five rounds or so, and I know that I can wait until the later rounds and or just you know pay them as an undrafted free agent, that's what I'm going to do. And then I don't get the pressure of having draft analysts tell me that I reached for somebody and poisoned my fan base. Because I, I think that that internal bias plays a lot into uh, where you see uh, FCS players, HBCU players uh, drafted or not drafted because uh, it's the instant reaction of social media. It's the, uh, it's, the, it's the draft gurus out there who can poison a fan base and thereby poison my, my, my job if, if I've reached out to find somebody uh, who I think might be a diamond in a rough. Uh, historically, 
uh, and, and I think this is a huge part of it. Uh, when the draft cut down its size from, what, 12 rounds to seven, I think that's a, a huge thing to take a look at because uh, I, I think the last I, I took a look at, there are scores of HBCU players uh, who were drafted from round seven through 12 uh, and, and who made, of course, made a mark for themselves. That player now is an undrafted free agent. So um, was I surprised? Slightly, but I, I think I've probably taken a, a little bit more of a nuanced look at it. Great stuff, great stuff. I like the way you put the bias. I see you, you're really digging down in a little bit of your research over the years. Uh, <laughs> and I think that plays a, a large part of it. And I like the way you summarize it also and talked about um, those scouts in terms of the reach, them doing their work, but what is the causation maybe uh, in terms of that, in terms of what that looks like. One of the things I'm intrigued about is you talked about first five rounds where that money gets significant, but six and seven, I want to do some more research uh, over a period of time and see how many, on average, how many players that go in the sixth and seventh round actually make a roster. Sure. What is that? Because oftentimes people will tell you if you go six, especially seven, that it's probably better to go as a undrafted free agent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, because you get to pick your team. But a lot of fascinating about it, oftentimes you can actually get more, more money as an unrestricted free agent versus seventh round, which is slotted in terms of what you can make, because you also negotiate oftentimes against more teams. Anytime, obviously, you know, when you could do negotiation, uh, the bargaining power is there. It's fascinating. But what I'm also intrigued about, Charles, when you look at it, at, what would it look like if you look at a person's future earnings or, you know, how do they're able to market themselves when they can say I was a seventh round draft pick versus an unrestricted free agent. So over the long period of time, uh, is there is it more financially benefit to be picked in the seventh round versus unrestricted agent? Or is that, as you said, just a fan thing, something that you like to be able to say? Does it really make a difference? So I think that's something to look at over the years. If you can get your data, get our hands on to really get some analysis of what this looking like besides the obvious in terms of the NFL really looking at the power five as the place where they're going to do their hunting. And the last thing I'll talk about is in a tweet that was made by Trotter as we start to close up, but I do want to give a little more context before we go there. Similar to what you talked about hero sports did a 2023 FCS undrafted rookies track. They had 11 FCS players were selected in the 2023 NFL draft, and many, many more will get the NFL opportunities after draft ends. Uh, as I alluded to in my numbers, I had 11 as well. Check out the running tracker FCS prospects who signed unrestricted free agent. Based on the last update they have here, um, please note that this includes uh, included our players who played multiple seasons in the FCS before playing their final season in the FBS. So that's something to think about too. FCS to the NFL tracker, 151. He had 11 drafted picks, as we all have noted now. He had 76 total UDFA, which is, you know, the unrestricted, undrafted, a free agent, I should say, 
uh, signing as free agents. And of those 76, essentially 12 of them were HBCU players. You had 64 that signed that were able to get what they call a tryout invite. There was only one HBCU that signed and was able to get the uh, invite. Um, in terms of that, you listed all those uh, free agents, so I won't do that again. But that's a perspective that I did want to make sure that was out there in regards to that overall number uh, of what that looks like and why I wanted to have that question in regards to going in the six, particularly the seven round versus a free agent. Uh, money may be stronger free agent wise in terms of the seven round, but what does that look like over longevity in terms of making a roster? Last thing here was by um, Jim, Jim Trotter. He brought out there, um, which I thought was fascinating. It, it collaborates a lot with what I said here. This is quoted from his text on Twitter. Put this out there and retweeted it for some to see. He said, let's discuss only one player from an HBCU being drafted. As much as I would love to call it disrespect, fact is, he puts this uh, in parentheses, if you would, based on the convos this morning with GMs and agents wrapping HBCU players, NFL teams are not pulling from uh, the small school level. Uh, there's some numbers that he wanted to share in terms of what that looks like as he continued a thread, only 10 players. Obviously, we have 11. He's a little off there. Uh, from the 125 FCS programs were drafted this year. But this stuck out to me. He did a little deeper. He looked over the last four years, and I gave you those numbers as well for HBCUs. Only 41 out of nearly 1,200 selections. You can do that, man. Mm. 125, right? FCS mm. programs. Mm. 41 out of a, nearly 1,200 selections over the last four years were from FCS schools over the past four drafts. So you see a trend when you see those kind of numbers, which is not necessarily good at all in terms of yeah. what that looks like. That's less than 4%, Charles. That's 3.4%, as you know. you sure you just calculated that. Mm -hmm. But according to some GM, teams are going to send scouts, sometimes multiple scouts, to top P5 schools during the year. So they're concentrating at the P5, but not only just P5, they're going to certain schools at the P5 during the year, sometimes multiple times. So you talk about the blue blade. So the rich get richer. Uh, so we see this playing out in the NFL sports as we thought that sports was supposed to be an open ballpark, but you see that financial money is starting to be an indicator. But let's, um, let me I'm finish curious. this, this sentence mm -hmm. and I'll let you jump in there. But if an FC player isn't on the prospects list, so they have a prospect list out there for yeah. FCS players that people may not know about. By two primary scouting services, teams might not visit the school. Go ahead, Charles, jump in there. Well, the big thing is I want to see how this kind of plays out because uh, Philadelphia, um, they went to Georgia and stocked up you know, basically. But if you remember a few drafts ago, <laughs> uh, the Raiders kind of did the same thing with Clemson. Yeah, they Georgia they, Georgia Dog. <laughs> you know, Raiders did the same thing with Clemson. Didn't really. All right, people were arguing, to your point, they were arguing Georgia was probably one of the best defenses in this modern era, as people say, ever in terms of defense. And the four anchors of that defense over the last two years, Philadelphia's got off for it. They got off point. They really did. Yeah, two two defensive tackles and and two linebackers. So it's it's that's going to be a fascinating watch over the tough next few years. Tough Cowboys fan. I very tough, extremely tough. Uh, but then, but you know, 
and again, the internal bias viewpoint. Philly's GM looks like a genius for going out and doing this versus finding that diamond in the rough that could have been anywhere. Jackson State, Grambling, Fort Valley, Furman. I don't care. But you know, again, it's it's the it's the instant reaction. It's the media coming back day after saying, "Hey, Hi Roseman is a genius. Look what he did." You know, versus the the alternative or the counter narrative, like what was he doing? Who did he play against? Things of that nature. So I think all that plays into you know uh, how they go about uh, making selections nowadays. Which is my greater point when you talk about the system, Charles. What are you getting to is the system that is played. All those are part of the system. You know, the bias that takes place, these powerful institutions, they get all the television, all the program all the time. They tend to get the four and five players. Uh, more than not, the four or five star players, uh, those that make it to the next level or make it four or five years in the program, uh, make programs competitive, it's obvious likely they're going to be good. And so it gets that confirmation bias to the next level that you're referring to. But I thought it was intriguing when he talks about there's a prospect list. I'm not sure how many people have even heard of this. Right. That's important. Uh, and that there are two primary scouting services. So you got the ability of a scouting service to help initiate the scouts in themselves. So now the scouts not only have their own bias, you got the confirmation bias, but now they got a system that also tells them that they need to be cognizant of what they're looking at. So as we thought it was just them doing their own bias, you got a system in place that creates that bias. Mm -hmm. He continues to say, it there becomes even more imperative that a pro liaison for the FCS schools to contact the scouting service to ensure their prospects are listed. So um, I guess that's important. Hopefully that's out there. I wonder how many FCS coaches even knew that that exists. So maybe we can get, get some folks to start talking about that and find yeah. out. And maybe that's a question that we can ask during uh, SWAC and MEAC football media days. How many of them are even aware of that? Mm -hmm. Another issue, some personnel people have, quote, standards, and he puts that in quotes. Others might call them biases, <laughs> Charles. <laughs> they, that they look for in players at certain positions. Things like height versus weight slash speed. If an FCS prospect lacks in any of those areas, some GMs move without a closer look. So they don't even go to the film with They're like, sure. oh, you, certain measurables. So if you have certain tangible measurables, and um, kudos to KJ Black because he came on HBCU night on Saturday night when there was an extra session done with Joshua Sims in the group, and he talked about some of that and how much that he has to really go in his work and what those measurables are. And if you don't even grade at a certain thing, you won't even get not a first look, <laughs> not a second look. You won't get first look. Last well, so yeah, goes so up the, on go ahead. The, the follow up question I would I, I have to ask, or I would love to ask KJ, is how do you go about? Uh, what is the grading scale? How do you go about uh, grading an individual? If I look at the same five seven player at Kansas State, and I look at the five seven player at Southern. What 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 is the the difference? I mean, because if if it if it comes down to 
who he's playing against, there has to be more to it because they're both shifty. They both can, nobody can tackle them in the open field. I don't see a difference between one of the most dynamic players I've seen over the past 10 years and Willie Quinn and a five, 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 seven FBS player. So that, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious well, about the great. Well, well, according to this and what KJ Black says, essentially the five, seven player at FCS is not even in the book. Hmm. So the only way an FCS player, and I would say if you look at this in terms of these numbers, you could even say a G5 player. Mm-hmm. They're not in the P5 level. They're not going to get looked. So the only way if you're a G5, FCS player, HBCU player, that you seriously get a look is if you meet some of those weird tangibles, that you have a certain height, like mm-hmm. that you, you know, can't teach. Then they'll look at you a little more, certain weight, wingspan, you know, Things, mm-hmm. but if you're equal to somebody in terms of certain measurables, no, you're not going to get really a second look. Then you get somebody like KJ that comes in, and they might push on the board. But remember, he's not the only one, so they got a pool in there talking. Uh, yeah. It's... So at the end, of, that one probably gets kind of left on the table in regards to that, in terms of that, and where you tend to be able to make some hay with, if you would, is done draft a free agent. And that's where you get the momentum with the 12 players from HBCUs. That's where you get a shot and maybe get the invite to camp. And that's where that uh, measure comes in. So great point. A follow-up question that he had in the tweet talked about, can we expect things to improve? Doubtful. P5 schools now view FCS programs as a feeder system and use the transfer portal and NI money to attract established FCS players to a bigger and more visible platform. Dion just did that as much as uh, his move from Jackson State to Colorado with some of the players. Obviously, some of his family came with him and some of them got recruits. They may have not ended up with Jackson State, but you know you're starting to see this. And now there's the question that comes out there is, if you're established at an FCS level, does it make sense, particularly if you hadn't done your homework and just maybe a year left, you don't have maybe two or more years, if you're not careful, you got FBS coaches that are bringing in just as a body, not necessary to play. And so now you can be more restrictive where at least you were able to shine and get some accolades and might get some of those looks if you have certain height measurable. But now if you transfer and you go behind somebody else and you don't play, you wash whatever you did before, which puts you in a more difficult position. But that is interesting. The last thing you put, bottom line, regardless of how many HBCU combines, legacy bowls, the league conducts sponsors, the draft numbers aren't likely to improve for HBCUs or small schools in general. And I I would add that I think that we need to understand the fact then that it's not even going for the G5 FBS programs. When I told you the numbers of less than – 10%. 10%. So it's concentrated at the power five. So they set up a system that is geared with that. The other thing that you had a lot of people talking about that was fascinating to me about how much effort do you put in at the HBCU or FCS level to get a player drafted, which was fascinating to me because I'm like, you do, do you do all this, do all this more for 1%? I mean, they actually call this the lottery right? And the draft. And so you're talking about 1%. So some of this is is just God-given 
luck and principle after you work hard. Because a lot of them work hard, and so I don't want to take that away. With but there's some things that you are measuring, blessed with, or whatever. And so how much do you really change the system when it's only about 1% making it? Hmm. Right? What is the draw of all this when you talk about the fact that even at the Alabamas, when those four and five star come in, they may have 10 drafted, right, juniors and seniors. But you think about the recruiting class they bring in. They bring in 20, 25, 30 players. Mm -hmm. So even at the best prepared schools or whatever, you have 10 players at Alabama, that's still, for that institution, overall, that's still just 9%. Sure. So even sure. the best laid plans doesn't work out in terms of how much talent, luck, fortune, God-giving uh, redress allows you to make it to the NFL. So that was the kind of final point that I wanted to put out there. I think we put a lot of energy in something that um, is to the point that you can't create a master class of a plan that if you follow strictly is automatically going to get you there. There's some things that are just out of your control. Sure. Let me close, close on that and hopefully um, people got some additional information that didn't quite get anywhere else uh, with that saying. Thank you for listening to Inside the HBC Sports Lab. Make sure you share our podcast with your friends and colleagues. I am Dr. Kenyatta Cavill, the Dean of HBC Sports, coming from inside the lab in the College of Sports with Mike Washington and Charles Bishop. Again, we want to thank you for listening to Dr. Bill's Inside HBC Sports Lab with Mike Washington and Charles Bishop every Tuesday and Thursday, 6 o'clock. I know we did a little extended hour there, Charles. Appreciate you hanging in there, but I thought it was important to point out that extra component of that. We look forward to next week, Thursday to be exact. For the latest news in the lab, follow me, Dr. Kenyatta Cavill, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Inside the HBC Sports Lab with Facebook, inside the HBC Sports Lab on YouTube and Facebook. Dream big. Continue to move forward. We will talk with you soon. Charles? Of course. Lecture? Dismissed. Hey, Charles, get the last word. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>